So I feel very happy to be back. Um, it has been a while, and I've missed you. So it's nice to be back. Um, this is the end of a, about a three-week trip here in Colorado. I was living in Colorado Springs um, until April, and then my base shifted. And I'm a little bit in between bases at the moment. And so uh, I've come back, and I've done a bunch of teaching and have spent different times with different people in informal contexts. And for me, it has been really, really wonderful. I've enjoyed meeting new people, and it's been really a, a beautiful thing to watch and see the way communities have come together and the way interest has kind of arisen, and there's been a kind of a groundswell of, of people stepping forward in order to help out. And so, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the role of community. But before I get into that, I wanted to just touch base with some, like, fundamental concepts of, you know, what we're doing and how we're practicing. So when we look at, you know, the essential teachings, you know, when we look at, you know, the, the essential teachings can be distilled into something as simple as is, is that things, uh, the Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering. And everything that we are looking at can be distilled and synthesized into this uh, understanding, suffering and the end of suffering. And when we look at and explore suffering, obviously we have a myriad ways of, uh, of its expressions in terms of our, our body and our health and our minds and our relationships and our cultures and our context and the systems that we're in. And so when we're looking at form, when we're looking at the structures, when we're looking at the nature of relationships, we can see that everything that we are dealing with is comprised of many different elements. And there isn't any solid, unchanging element that we can know or name or label that belongs to any of it. You know, you know so this, you know, this is a bell ringer. I might be able to use it as a mallet. You know, I could knock somebody on the head with it. And if I was very clever, I could put it on the table and use it as a Buddha stand for a very small statue, you know? So this thing in and of itself doesn't have any fixed designation. It's very much dependent on the context that it's being used, our association and habits around it, okay? There's nothing in it that makes it permanently a bell ringer, okay? And then when we look at it in terms of molecular basis, it's absolutely comprised of a lot of space. You know, there's electrons and there's neutrons and there's atoms and there's things like that. And in between these tiny little molecules is vast amounts of space. And so from a, like a, a molecular point of view, we've got a probability density that expresses itself in the shape of a bell ringer. Okay? Now, what on earth does that have to do with us? Well, everything, because we have forms, we have our bodies, and we have the structures of our communities, and we have our relationships, and we have our values and our ideas, and all of that is based on our coming together of a variety of conditions, amongst which there's an awful lot of emptiness, okay? Now, I've come from a very um, rich tradition, 
And I feel blessed to have been able to live this life as a nun. And I feel blessed that I've been able to come here and feel such an enormous amount of support and caring. But as I navigate my own personal story, my own personal journey, and the kinds of challenges that we're up against, I see that part of what we're dealing with is the navigation of a teaching that has come through a traditional context into a modern context, into a postmodern context. And so in a traditional context, there are certain ways in which things would formulate themselves. So when we look at the refuges as one of the essential ways that we can self-identify as Buddhist, it's one of the delineating factors of what separates Buddhists from non-Buddhists. And when we look at each of the refuges, the refuge in the Buddha is on one hand the historical person that lived and realized the truths. And so when one is a Buddhist, one actually understands that this person lived, has awakened, and has some confidence in the truth that he woke up to. But in an imminent perspective, the Buddha represents the awakened mind. In fact, Buddha means the awakened mind. And the awakened mind is not limited to people who self-identify as Buddhists. Okay? And so we've got taking refuge in the Buddha, which defines people as Buddhists, but is not limited to Buddhist to actually understand and realize. When we take the Dhamma, you know, historically or classically, you know, what we have is the teachings, the legacy, the Tripitaka, the Sutta Pitika, the Vinaya Pitika, the Abhidhamma Pitika, which are the collections of teachings that were given as a result of the 45 years of the Buddha's wandering and the kinds of analysis that came and the talks that he gave and the understanding that came as a result. Yeah? But when you look at the Dhamma as an imminent principle, the Dhamma is about the truth of the way things are. It's the understanding of nature. It's the understanding of cause and effect. It's the understanding of the relationship between form and emptiness. People who self-identify as Buddhists regard the legacy of the Buddha as a teaching to take heart with, to pay attention to, to follow. But the truth of the way things are is not limited to people who are Buddhists. The law of cause and effect is not limited to people who are Buddhists. The nature of the way things are is something that can be known by everybody. So again, we have a second principle which self-identifies as Buddhist, and when we look at it in an imminent perspective, it's universal. The third principle which defines the refuge is the refuge of the Sangha. And that has also many layers. So, you know, originally it was referred to the Aryan Sangha, the noble Sangha, the Sangha of monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen who had realized and penetrated to the truth. They were on some level clear about the nature of suffering, its cause, the cessation of suffering, and the path that led to the cessation of suffering. And since the very beginning of the Buddha's dispensation, there have been lay people who have realized the complete cessation of suffering. And yet over the years, and particularly during the traditional period of time from which the Buddha's dispensation existed, the Sangha was referred to as the monastic Sangha. 
the Sangha of monks and nuns who have committed their lives to living this life and to keeping the precepts and to having the teachings be something that they knew and recited and passed on. And the councils and the memorization of the suttas has been the, the vehicle that it was passed on for many hundred of years until it was written down. And so there was a division between the uh, ostensible role of the lay community and the ostensible role of the monastic community in terms of the dedication and the commitment to upholding the teachings and passing them on. And in the traditional framework of the society, it was clear and understood that the role of the monastics was to hold this, to guard this, to protect this, to live this, to embody this, and to pass it on. And then we get into a modern society where our family structures have started to dissolve and our village structures have started to dissolve and we have industrialization where things are reduced to like dead things and we've got consumerism that's gone rampant. We've got an all-pervasive sense of meaninglessness, which is something that we're having to deal with, an all-pervasive sense of alienation which is, you know, people are trying to figure out who they are in relationship to others. And we also have a shift in the way that this whole um, sangha has been carried. So in a traditional society, the monastery was the hub of the village. It was the hub of the society. And the spiritual elders that were living in the monastery were like the psychologists, they were like the judges, they were like the divorce counselors. You know, it was like everything that was needed was represented in the elders who were in the monastery. They performed ceremonies that supported marriages, and they supported ceremonies that helped people with their passages of death. And so, and oftentimes, where education was possible was in the monastery, because there wasn't educational systems that were available in the village. So the monastery was central in a Buddhist culture to a healthy, thriving community. And because of that, there was this deep sense of the value and the importance of that, as well as a tremendous honoring of the monastics, because they were the ones that helped create the context where the health in the village would flourish. And we have shifted into from a traditional culture to a modern culture. And from that modern culture, there have been a number of people who've gone to the East and taken ordination for periods of time and come and said, well, the meditation is really wonderful. That's great. And all this other stuff is a little bit like, you know, Western people are not going to be into all of this stuff. And it's really not that needed, you know. We don't need to do bowing and chanting, and we don't need to do all this ceremony stuff, and we don't need to do any of this other stuff, because really the essence is about meditation. And if we bring meditation back to our people, then we will give them the essence of what is needed in order to wake up. And thus the Vipassana movement was born, and thus in the United States we have a predominant culture of lay people who are teaching and practicing, and lay centers where there is meditation retreats that are taking place, and lay groups where people like yourselves come together and study and practice and have day-long retreats, and it's wonderful. But what one also recognizes in all of this is, is that having extracted the meditation technique out of a lifestyle, then there's a whole bunch of other idiosyncrasies that emerge. And one of the idiosyncrasies, which is hardly an idiosyncrasy, is the lack of diversity. 
and how the, the kind of culture of people who tend to be drawn to this is a very monoculture. And that monoculture doesn't have within it the resource necessarily to reach out to the larger culture that is around us. We have other issues around, um, you know, who are the teachers? And so, you know, when we look at meditation groups, there's often a predominance of women who come to the groups. And we look across the board, there's often a a predominance of men who are the teachers. And so this is an interesting um, conundrum, how we got here. Okay. And then we look at it in terms of, of economic diversity. And we recognize, again, that we're working with a very narrow range of the human spectrum of what we have with our, around us in our cultures. And so then I've seen many different communities try and take the individual groups and address each individual group as to how we can bring more diversity, more support, more uh, economic uh, spread, how we can reach out, Okay. But it's coming from this extracted meditation culture that's been extracted from this whole lifestyle. Okay. Now, we come into the postmodern era, and in the postmodern era is characterized by an interest in integration, an interest in doing things holistically. We've got people talking about collaborative leadership in business sector, in religious sector. I'm delighted to see Salwazi leading Daylongs, and I'm delighted to see Michelle doing program coordinating. And it's no longer so much about one individual person who has the whole capacity to lead and to direct and to support as it is a collaboration of a number of people who are bringing their talents and skills and heart into a community process. Yeah. So in my personal situation, having lived for 20 years in the monasteries in England, you know, there, I, it is so difficult for me to convey the blessings of what it is to live as a monastic, unless I had a long stretch of time and space. I mean, just imagine what it would be like to live in a field of generosity where every single thing that you own has been given to you where the people around you are totally dedicated to helping you keep your precepts, where you have retreat times between one and three months in the wintertime and one and three months in the summertime as normal, where you are supported to study and to practice and to wake up, and that is your life. And in doing that, then when you have things to offer, then there's occasions where that can be what you do. But your life is dedicated and focused on waking up, and that's your job. And the people around you are dedicated and supporting to helping you do that. And you're living with people who are agreeing to live on precepts, and you're living in environments that are conducive for meditation, and that's what it's like to live as a monastic. It's an unbelievable privilege. But alongside this incredible privilege is the challenge that we've had to navigate of this tradition coming from a traditional society that has had a difference of valuing the monks as opposed to the nuns and a very clear structure that supports the monastics as the sole spiritual authorities and the lay community as the ones who are to offer support with requisites, information, 
and energy uh, to help build and develop and cultivate. Yeah. So I come back to the States after, you know, 20 years of living in this conundrum of feeling the enormity of the blessings and the challenges of the limitations of trying to navigate out of a traditional context that put a difference between the valuing and the status and the privilege and the resource of the monks in contrast to the nuns. And we were told from the beginning that if we were to only realize the transcendent understanding of the truths, then there would be no problem with the form. So we were told that if we take this form and emptiness thing and realize it to the depth, then we would be able to get such a sufficient blessing from understanding the awakening that comes from that, that the challenges that we were having to navigate would no longer matter. And because we were in deference to our elders and I had faith, I listened. And for 15 years did my best to try and put that into practice. And what I realized after 15 years of doing everything I knew to put that into practice is there was a flaw in that thinking, which is that when there are certain ways of conditioning you so that you perceive yourself to be lesser or lower or your authority is constantly being dismantled or challenged or undermined, not because you are not capable, but because of a, uh, a hierarchical or a gender difference which is built into the system, then it conditions you so that you are not able to realize these transcendent realizations. And so here we have a circumstance where the emptiness of what needs to be realized is not possible to be manifested into the form. There's a block somewhere. Because what we know fundamentally is, is that it is not in accordance with the Buddhist teachings to do things which are harmful. We know that, and that's unequivocal. There is no debate on that point. No matter what the scholarship says about all the other politics, there's no debate about that point. And what we know is, is that prejudice of any form is harmful. And that's unequivocal. So when we have structures that embody certain forms of prejudice as the mechanism through which we are supposed to realize the end of suffering, we are in a dilemma. And as a nun, it was very apparent this dilemma that we were in. And it was also apparent that this dilemma could not be negotiated within the structure and the system itself. So when I realized that, when the sisters as a group realized that, then I made the choice to leave. Because I knew that doing something, colluding with something, condoning something, going along with something that was harmful was not in accordance with what my commitment was, which was to realize the end of suffering and to support non-harm. So... I have the blessings of the precepts and 20 years of training and the recognition that evolution is needed. 
that we need to bring a monastic culture into our postmodern world in a way which is congruent with our understanding of what is harmful and what is not harmful. So that the emptiness that we realize flows into the structures that we embody. There isn't a disconnect. And the form of our lives supports the realization of the emptiness, which is our deepest nature. The form is not conditioning us so that we are not able to do that. So when we step back out of the Vipassana community and look again at what this is about, you know, for me, what I see is what is needed rather than each subculture to investigate how we bring more diversity and support and coherence and strength to the subculture is to come back into a bigger perspective and say, what happens if we look at it from the fourfold Sangha perspective again, but with fresh eyes? What happens if we go back to the model of the monastic community in relationship with the lay community and then begin to use that as an opportunity to address some of the things which are have been embedded in the traditional manifestation of that? So in our communities, for example, there was a discrepancy between the monks and the nuns, but there was very little issue around people of different sexual orientation. So there was tremendous diversity in the community around that. There was tremendous diversity around people of color and people of different ethnic uh, origins. There was tremendous diversity of people of different economic strata. And the whole thing was not built on meditation because it was a lifestyle rather than a meditation practice. There were all kinds of reasons people would come. Sometimes they'd come because they just enjoyed the peaceful environment. Sometimes they came because they liked to help cook or build or garden. Sometimes they came because they liked to help with the office work. You know, sometimes they just came for the festivals. So festivals and celebration and joy and work and community were all part of our life and all shared with everybody who felt any resonance. And there was no requirement that anybody come be a Buddhist. So the doors were open. And it operated on donations so that anybody with any economic issues or non-issues was welcome. Because economy was not the gateway through which people could come through the door. There was a donation box in the back. There was never a talk about dana. People would come. They'd go. They'd take the literature. They'd stay in the meditation hall. They'd come on retreat. It was offered. And it was offered because there was enough support to get the requisites together to make it possible for the monastics to live there and anyone else who wanted to live there to say, this is really important. It's important to create the space for this to happen. So I come back to the States and I think, you know, I just wonder... I just wonder if it might not be useful to step back a few steps and look at this from a slightly different perspective. And rather than try and bring diversity into the subculture, try and open up the culture to include the fourfold sangha in a way that now navigates the challenges that we know need to be navigated. So in addition to the prejudice against the feminine, The other prejudice that we need to navigate is the prejudice against the precepts. 
So in the monastery, the, the, the people who have the spiritual authority are the people who are fully ordained. And people who are not fully ordained do not. And we look in this culture with the people who have been practicing for 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 years, who've got centers and teacher training programs and have deep insight and have huge um, depth. And that also does not make any sense. That the only people who are afforded spiritual authority are the people who keep full ordination precepts. So the model is a new model. It's not one that has happened yet. And yet, for me, it speaks to what is needed. And part of the reason why it speaks to what is needed is because when we look at refuge, you know, we are in a society where the pressure is on, where the alienation is up, where the, the, the need to navigate an unbelievable amount of complexity and details you know, I hear that from virtually every person that I talk to. We are dealing with global issues that are completely beyond small groups of people to navigate. We are finding or trying to find a sense of connection and meaning in our lives. You know, and how do we need to do that? And so for me, the essential importance of community is, is that it begins to change the path and letting it, it's, it becomes the focus of the path. It becomes the axis of the path. It becomes the place from which all of the other path factors can emerge is when the community begins to grow in a way which is strong and healthy and cohesive and in a way where we can support each other to do this very challenging work of recognizing the truth of the way things are. To actually navigate the prejudices that we have and come into a place of an open-hearted willingness to not enact habits or thought patterns or structures that are harmful. I was teaching at the East Bay Meditation Center, which is a remarkable place in Oakland and it has probably the most uh, sophisticated diversity policies of any place in the country. And they have registration policies that support um, giving the, uh, the fragile demographics that they're trying to encourage. And I had long conversations with the teachers about this because they wanted me to know what their policies were and me to feel comfortable with it. And I said, you know, I didn't understand the effect of prejudice until I went to the monastery and was living as a nun. And I understand now the safety that comes in numbers when there's a core amount of people that you can relate to or identify with. There's a sense of safety that you feel that's very different if that's not present. And so I was completely amenable to these registration practices that supported the fragile demographics. So that in that community, they made a, a sincere effort that people who are normally excluded would feel very welcome. 
When we take this back into a four-fold Sangha model where the diversity in the context that I was in was enormous because the traditional people could relate to a traditional model. It wasn't an extracted thing from something that they were used to. It was what they were used to. In fact, it was the, the epitome of what brought them health, happiness, joy, and success was to be in relationship with the monastic community. And so, you know, what has been speaking through me for these uh, last several years is a, a vision of an evolution of the fourfold Sangha where the, the essential principles, the essential teachings, the essential disciplines are upheld. And we begin to look at some of the structures that had gotten identified as being part of the traditional culture, but actually need to be retooled. So, you know, I've spent the last three weeks here. And I have spent the weeks here because there have been a, quite a team of people who've stepped forward to help and support with food and accommodation and rides and setting up teachings. And I was apprehensive how it was going to go because I didn't want anyone to feel tired or burnt out and I didn't want people to feel overextended. And, you know, if your life depends on other people feeding you, you know, there's an interesting kind of relationship that gets set up there of both incredible vulnerability as well as remarkable interdependence. Every day, I eat because people offer me food. And if they don't offer me food, I don't eat. And so for me, the joy was is that not only for me was it a, a remarkable three weeks with lots of opportunities for teaching and lots of, of opportunities for meeting new people, but there was also the joy in watching people come alive and connect with each other and find ways of being with each other that they hadn't had before or they hadn't taken before, you know, this context arose. So the beauty of this is it, it rubs this relationship of dependence, interdependence in a way that can allow communities to come into cohesiveness with each other, strength with each other, support with each other, where one recognizes the importance of getting to know each other and support each other, where it's more than just something superficial, where we just say, hi, how's it going? And then we sit down for 45 minutes, we get up, and we say, that was nice, and then we head off home. You know? Where we touch the things that need to be touched, where we know the things that need to be honored, where we see each other, where we recognize the challenges of what we're having to navigate, and find some way of, as a group of people, gathering our collaborative, collective interest and resource and aspiration together to see if something can emerge through that. So form the structure of things, what defines things, the shape teams take out, up, is made up of many different elements. Inside of it all is emptiness. There isn't anything substantially or unchanging that we can name or label that belongs to any of it. And yet, the emptiness itself expresses itself through the form. So when we have transcendent teachings that talk about the ultimate truths, and our structures and forms 
are not embodying that, it doesn't feel right. It's not in accordance with the truth. It doesn't make sense. And yet, we're having to navigate these complicated political stuff in order for the things to come together. So, diversity has become a topic. People of color, people of noticing, there are not very many people of color. Why are there not very many people of color? And so then, as a last-minute add-on, oh, we need to do something about the people of color. So at this teachers' meeting, again, you know, one of the, there were two people there who've been doing a lot of retreats of people of color. And two days before the teachers' meeting, one of them was asked if she would do a presentation on the people of color. And it's like, well, no. (laughs) And the first time I heard about all of this was at a teachers' meeting many years ago. And again, there was an interest to, to introduce this as a topic, to bring awareness to this issue and to let people recognize that this is something that for many is actually very dear. And so she was given five minutes to talk about the issues of the people of color, along with everybody else who had five minutes to introduce their little subtopic or subgroup or subproject. And she stands up with grace and regal presence and a calm voice and says, you know, the issues around the people of color are so complicated, I cannot speak about this in five minutes and sits down. So we have a longing to wake up. We have a longing to understand the nature of suffering and realize the end of suffering. And yet we're doing it in these small, confined vantage points that keep us locked into the same paradigms that we're trying to move out of. So initially, ages ago, when I was asked to talk, it was suggested that I speak about the role of women in Buddhism. And I replied saying, I think if I did that, I'd be contributing to the problem rather than to the solution. I think what we need is to open up our perspective and look at this from a slightly bigger angle and talk about what do we need now in order to move forward. I mean, certainly when we understand some of the challenges of what we have come through, it gives context to why we need to move forward. But it's time to move forward. And I don't see prejudice against women as prejudice against women. I see this as prejudice. And when I have tasted what it feels like to live in a context where there's prejudice, I don't want to have anything to do with prejudice towards any other human being. And yet I can also see that because of my own conditioning, I have work to do. Because I don't see all of my own prejudices in the way ignorance doesn't see itself. You know? So I don't have the view that is able to create something that is beyond the ignorances that I have. And that's why what I need is other people in this soup with me to help hold and see and mirror so that what can emerge is something which actually has value, is connected to essential teachings, and has benefit for the most people. And so that's what I envision. What I envision is a model of community living where there are monastics and there are lay people. And the monastics and the lay people together are leading the community. 
And it cannot be that people who got one year meditation experience is given the same amount of responsibility and authority as somebody who's got 20 years experience. And so we do have within this model a chaos coefficient that is going to need to be navigated. But just because there's chaos in the unfolding of it doesn't for me mean that it's not something (coughs) worthwhile to begin or to try or to endeavor or to talk about. Because the value of monastics is is that our entire life is dedicated to waking up. And even though monastics don't have a monopoly on that either, I have known lay people who have that same dedication. And I have known lay people who have realized the fruit of that in a way which is so deeply inspiring. And yet for me, there is a place for monastics. And in our Western Vipassana scene, it's like there are very few monastics. It's not referenced to monastics or connected to monastics. It's like monastics are second, third, fourth generation, you know? Maybe someone knew about one long ago. (laughs) And so, you know, I have these questions and I also have this vision. And so, you know, what Michelle was talking about was there's some um, sheets on the back that talk more about the vision of awakening truth. And there's sign-up sheets back there about people who are interested in uh, signing up and being part of this and hearing more about how things are unfolding. And, you know, I have been clear from the beginning, there is no way that one person is going to be able to make this work. This is going to happen because there are a group of people who realize that this is very important because it's going to take an enormous amount of dedication. But when I think about living in a system or in a structure where the form brings us to the realization of emptiness and the emptiness that we understand is then embodied in the forms and the structures that we live with, my whole body relaxes. I think, yes, that's right. That's what's needed. So tonight is the 3rd of July. Tomorrow is the 4th of July. And for people who are in this country celebrating the 4th of July, we're celebrating Independence Day. But for me, Independence Day is, in our own particular contemplation, is not separate from Interdependence Day, you know, where we realize the way that we are connected to each other and the way that we affect each other, the way that we can support each other, the way that we can undermine each other, the way that we can collude with each other, the way we can stand in integrity with each other. So I left England as an alms mendicant in a system that was set up to support me. And when I decided to leave, there was nothing that I had. There was no fund, there was no benefactor, there was no support system, there was no infrastructure, there was no organization, there was no invitation. There was the conviction that it was important to try. And it hasn't been easy. But what I am recognizing and continue to recognize is is that the power of the practice prevails. People are generous. I have made friends. Things do emerge. There is substance and structure and a little bit of ground that is beginning to grow, to hold and support and nourish. And when I speak about this, I get a lot of feedback. 
And yet we're in a position now of trying to figure out, well, what do we do with all of this now? How do we move this forward? What are the next steps? So I'm a visionary. I'm not a strategic planner. But I don't have to be everything. But what I need is other people to step forward, to add into the bits the stuff that I'm not good at or hopeless at, you know? And if this is going to happen, it's going to happen because there are a group of people who are committed and dedicated and realize the importance of this. It's not about me. And I don't even feel that it's my vision. I feel that I'm giving voice to something that needs to happen, that the earth is asking me to do this. We're at a turning point. You know, our world system is maxed out. We don't have the capacity to continue with the same ways that we've been going. And nobody's got the smarts in themselves or in small groups to figure it out. And as we get together and support each other, we support each other through the challenge, the stress, the evolution, the emergence of something new. So these are my thoughts for the evening. And when I give that initial chant, that's an invitation for people not to believe anything I say. That initial chant is an opportunity or a reminder for everyone to be in full relationship with their own deepest understanding and to listen from that place. And if you hear something that I say that makes sense or resonates, you can know that it's resonating with your own deepest truth. And if you hear me saying things that don't make any sense, then you can just let it go. But if you ever hear me say something that cuts across your deepest understanding, when I'm in this context of speaking like this, in a Dhamma context, you know, I would ask that you not just let it go. That you find some way of getting back to me. Because this is a very sacred, special situation where people are showing up and bringing their interest and their attention. And that needs to be respected. And it needs to be respected and there needs to be a mutual understanding and a mutual agreement with that. And when that's present, then we can allow this to unfold in a way which feels correct and healthy. So I would like to close this reflection here. But again, I would just like to express my deep, heartfelt appreciation for your welcome this evening and for this you know, remarkable three weeks of, of teachings and invitations and meeting new friends and spending time here. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.